Are you a caregiver? Or do you have a loved one who is aging and you or they might have questions that need to be answered? We have some answers that might help. This is Aging Life Network with Nancy Oriola. Today, you'll hear from experts and others related to the field of aging who will bring you answers, best practices, and tips for helping your loved one navigate this new part of life. Now, here is your host, Nancy Oriola. Oh, hi, this is Nancy. Welcome to Aging Life, my show about all things aging. Today, I'm talking with Freddie Zider, who is a hospital discharge planner, and we are talking about the hospital discharge process. In my opinion, the hospital discharge is second only in importance to the life-saving work being done by the doctors and nurses. How the discharge is managed can make an enormous difference in overall recovery success. So often underutilized by families, a hospital discharge professional or planner can be a tremendous source of information, understanding, and assistance in your loved one's return to their former life. As she will share today, these moments often require difficult decisions and sometimes an acknowledgement of a new reality. We know that for many families, uh, the the hospital event becomes the first moment when planning begins in the age-related process. Of course, I always recommend planning begin prior to that, and we look at the what-ifs, but for so many of us, we, we don't do that. We, we wait until there is an event, and very often a hospitalization is coupled with uh, a significant medical event for an older adult. So I am so excited that Freddie Zider is joining me today on Aging Life. Thank you, Freddie, for taking time out of your very busy life to spend an hour with us and talk about this often very confusing, stressful, fearful process. Sure. Thank you, Nancy. I'm glad to be here. So I, I want to begin uh, big picture. Um, you know much more than me about the discharge process. And I'm wondering if you could share some of the general information with our listeners about what that process is supposed to be and often is. So when you're admitted to the hospital under basic guidelines for Medicare and Medicaid CMS, the people that um, accredit the hospitals, a case manager is basically supposed to assess you, meet with you, um, and do an interview per se, uh, 24 to 48 hours after admission. And that interview is going to be asking questions about um, your the social situation, whether you live, uh, in, in other words, do you live alone? Do you have help? What kind of equipment do you already have in the home and what you are using, meaning wheelchairs, walkers, oxygen? Have you used home care? Um, you know, what kind of um, social supports you have. Um, the case manager needs to get a good picture of the whole situation. They also look at geography, meaning, you know, are you living quite remotely and, and are there not home care and hospice services that go where you are? Um, 
And things like, do you have a primary care physician? We look at, you know, sort of, is this person someone who's been able to do their home medical follow-up on their own? Or are they someone with sort of a history of not, let's say, complying with the medical advice and it's ended up as a detriment? To them. So there is a pretty comprehensive interview done when you get into the hospital, when you're okay. admitted. Yeah. So you look at medications and how that impacted, or you look at why they're in the hospital, right? The diagnoses. And- yeah. I mean, we don't per se right off the bat start looking at medications. That is done on admission with a mm-hmm. history and physical okay. from the ER where a lot of people are admitted from. Um, we certainly, after or before we interview you, we're reading that and we're seeing what the medical practitioner is saying in that. Um, so drug interactions and things like that are, you know, they're part of the big picture, but um, we're looking at unresolved medical issues like someone that continues to come in maybe with wound care issues or falling in the home. Are they a fall risk? You know, if that's been happening and we look at previous admissions to the hospital and we're, we're saying, you know, this is a this seems to be something that's reoccurring. Something needs to change for the betterment of of the patient if they're in agreement with it. So uh, if it's Medicare, Medicaid related, so regardless of where you are in the company, uh, in the country, the standards are essentially very similar from hospital to hospital. I'm, I'm pretty sure if the hospital needs and has accreditation to take Medicare and Medicaid patients, these are the standards of practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, a case manager, like I said, 24 to 48 hours. Now, sometimes, you know, that's difficult. Um, if, if they can't reach a family member, if the patient isn't someone who's able to communicate, mm-hmm. um, or, and if, or if there's nobody available and, again, the patient is not displaying competence or the ability to interact um, about their history and their home situation. How often are you finding, seeing people coming in um, who are living alone without many supports? We, you know... I, I would say that that's something that happens, you know, more often than it used to. Mm-hmm. Um, my, my attitude it, it tries to be that everybody has someone somewhere um, near them in their life. Sometimes the most important resource or support to someone is their neighbor's or people in their church, or their friends, or an ex-husbands um, and wives. And, you know, um, it, it's, it's pretty rare that someone doesn't have anybody. Um, but, but it does happen. It, it makes the picture more complicated, for sure. Right. Or even if they have a, quote, support network, trying to get your head around how that support network can provide what the person needs. 
may be tricky. Right. And, and I think, you know, family members that are speaking with us about, let's say, their mother in the hospital, um, children, for example, adult children are usually pretty assertive about, you know, I'm working full time. I'm not going to be able to be at her house all day, every day, even for a few days. I mean, they're typically they're going to be fairly honest about it. Um, So we know uh, because that is important. If we know someone has been stated as a support system, but that support system is something that's not terribly committed to them, we do have to um, begin the process, you know, keeping that in mind. Now, if a patient is competent and they're telling us, I have a neighbor and she will come into my house every day and I've talked to her. We are not going to be people that intrude on that neighbor and interview them and make sure they're coming in. We, we try not to be total truth seekers, um, you know, so, but within the realm of practicality, but. Well, and hopefully the person is being truthful and, and if not, if they're competent, they get to make some bad choices. Absolutely. I mean, we can't force someone into something we think is more safe if they are able to make their own decisions. That's that's a difficult situation, but we do what we can do that. And and that is a, you know, it's, it's an important thing to remember, you know. Yes, yes. You have the right not to have to go and live somewhere else just because it's safer. Are there, um, so I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, that more often than not, an older adult, if they've been in the hospital three, four, seven days, uh, depending on why they're there, but, you know, I, we all know that um, there's a deconditioning process that occurs, even if we're there for something treatable that we're able to get treated while we're in the hospital, Um, We often find older adults, depending on how old they are, how frail they are, need some form of rehabilitation in order to get back to what you and I might call a baseline or their former level of functioning, could be a new level of functioning. But um, rehab is often in the picture. And you and I have had conversations about this. Yes. Um, how are those discharge decisions made and who makes those decisions? Well, you know, every decision about discharge um, is decided by the patient if the patient is competent. Mm-hmm. Um, again, they have the right to say no to the recommendations of the physician, the case managers, the physical therapists. Um, but, you know, there can be strong recommendations made to the patient. We don't um, begin fights on this front with people um, if right. we can help it. Sure. So, so the patient not. makes the decision. And sometimes... Unfortunately, the insurance makes the decision in terms of if someone wants rehab and they just are doing too well and the insurance denies it. 
and the insurance process often is started before discharge um, from the provider, let's say one of the rehabs or a home care, and um, it just isn't going to be feasible because the patient is doing too well. And then we need to look at what that fear is about for them and why they don't feel like they can go home, even though our therapists and we feel like they can go home mm-hmm. um, ostensibly. But oh, So do you see that often? People fearful uh, of returning home and wanting to go to rehab? Yeah, oh, we, we okay. see it. Um, it's not super duper often because there are pretty um, clear guidelines. And I think a lot of people want to return home, but there, there is okay. a percentage that want more time with people and with, with support. And they, they want don't, time. They just don't feel well, right? Or they're okay. They're I just afraid. It. And I um, should ask, I think I asked the question the wrong way. Um, how are discharge recommendations made? So let's do a little context around that. Um, if this is not a show about, you know, different kinds of rehabs, but I think it would be important for our listeners to understand that even in the rehabilitation world, there are different levels of rehabilitation. And so there are recommendations made about which level of care is needed so who, right. so how do those recommendate? What what are those different levels? Let's do that first, and then who recommends that level? So there are a couple of ways that recommendations are made. Probably the biggest one is it, which is sort of, let's say, the legal framework is a physician will write the order in the hospital pretty soon on for physical therapy and occupational therapy to do an evaluation of the patient. And it's a fairly thorough evaluation, and it it does take into consideration what their baseline was, um, not just previous right the day of admission, but even maybe a few weeks before that, what their regular baseline was before they started to not feel well or something happened. And um, they make the recommendation based on distance walking and what kind of assistance someone needs and whether they're safe, you know, sitting and standing up and, you know, things like that, just sort of the practical ways that you get around your home. So they make a recommendation typically of either acute rehab, um, skilled rehab, or home health care. And those three in the, the you know, descending, the first one is the most intensive one, which is acute rehab. And, you know, maybe there's a, some time to go into that maybe in another show on some level, but they make the recommendation. And a case manager who will be meeting with a patient that's especially complex, maybe even on a daily basis, is going to be sort of talking and looking at that. We can often tell very quickly um, what someone, what level of rehab someone would benefit from, um, you know, just basically on what what we're reading and what how the patient's doing when we're going in the room. Um, well, so there's so it's the, the I would say the therapy evaluations are the first and biggest sort of indicator. 
of what's recommended and who recommends. And I think for the listeners, we could, we could briefly say that acute rehab is often um, those, well, who are able to do three or more hours a day of therapies so it, yes, it's it's there are only two facilities in uh, Albuquerque that provide that. Um, it's much more expensive for insurance, so insurance is really looking at everything, mm-hmm. um, and you know all of the notes that are in the medical record, and that is two and a half to three hours a day, broken up through the whole day five days a week, or it can be, you know, 2.1 hours, seven days a week. But so that's someone with a fairly high baseline before they came into the hospital. And they are going to, the stakes are higher with a patient like that because they need to get back to a higher level and they can tolerate that kind of therapy. And Sometimes it is people that are medically a little more complex because a physician sees them daily at that level of rehab. And that, again, is called inpatient acute rehab. Okay. And so, right, one has to find out what is in their loved one's community, what facilities, if they have acute rehab, probably most um, communities have at least one. And um, well, yes. the bigger the bigger cities have like there's one in Santa Fe, right. um, and, and yeah, it, it, right. there's a way to access those. Um, sure, sure, and um, right. So, and then the skilled rehab is a much lower number in terms and, of. And then below that is, you know, just a step below that is skilled rehab, which is supposed to be an hour a day, 50 minutes a day. I don't believe they do it seven days a week. I think it's five days a week. Um, And those are typically in nursing facilities around the city of Albuquerque, where, you know, when they say skilled rehab, people have to understand that those are nursing centers. There are long-term care units there that are nursing home units, for lack of a better word. That's what we used to call them. Right. Um, And and so they typically will take a wing or a section of the nursing home, and that is just for the rehab work that's being done by the PTs, OTs. Right. Um, But, you know, they're pretty much, I would say, in the same areas of of the Mm -hmm. the, the whole building. And, you know, when you walk in, you are going to see long-term care residents um, sitting in the front. And, you know, and you would, if you're a visitor or the patient, you you will be seeing that. And I think that's something people need to consider that. Mm -hmm can be difficult. Um, And as people have often heard me say, you know, about nursing homes, some are better than others. Although, um, you know, it's not the preferred place. But um, it's often necessary. I mean, I'm sure you get pushed by, if you have a sophisticated family that understands these things, they may try to push for acute when in fact their loved one just really can't tolerate or would not benefit. 
Well, yes. And I, again, I do think sophisticated is a good word for people that sort of know the system better than the average person. Mm -hmm. And they will ask about um, acute rehab. But as case managers, we can question a physical therapy evaluation and we can say, you know, maybe, you know, behind the scenes, we can make a phone call and say, is this, you know, this patient seems sort of um, borderline. I mean, could he go to acute rehab? And then you need to look at insurance because some insurances are just going to go off that skilled recommendation. And so I've even gone as far as to ask if PT can reevaluate with acute rehab in mind based on a little more information about the patient's baseline and their insurance and other uh, medical conditions that would qualify them for that. Okay. And yes, some, some, I'm sorry. Some nursing centers are better than others, but as case managers, we always um, are required to give patients and their families choice. And that means giving them a list of providers Right. And they have to choose. And it's very difficult for them. They they say, well, I, I don't know anything about this. What do I, how do I do it? You know, and um, you can go online and you can go visit. You can do, it's, it's difficult. It is. Um, no, I know that we've, uh, I've, I've often, that's when I often recommend um, community-based case managers who can help direct families to some of the better Choices in a in a specific community because people working out in the community who can you know give recommendations um, do generally know what the better facilities are. But this is this is leading us to the next topic, and uh, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I want to talk more about the role um, you play as a discharge planner in um, educating and advocating for families and and older adults and also ask just what other questions they might ask that improve the possibility of a return to former functioning. So we'll be right back. You bet. I'm here with Freddie Zider. She's a hospital discharge planner and uh, we'll be back in 90 seconds. Thanks. Are you overwhelmed and struggling with the next step? Is your family in crisis? Do you need advice or help making a difficult decision for an aging loved one? Aging Life Network was developed to connect you with senior care experts and life care professionals who will discuss your unique situation, offer practical step-by-step guidance, tell you the questions to ask, and help you understand the maze of options. Their network of life care professionals available to you through HIPAA-compliant video conferencing and calls, will work with you to create action plans to solve your current and real-time problems. Aging Life Network's online educational center, ALN Academy, offers 24-7 access to the most up-to-date and accurate information for seniors and their families. Through podcast interviews with senior care experts, articles, and live webinars, Aging Life Network shares with you those things you need to know to care for your aging loved one. 
Check out aginglifenetwork.com today and find the answers you need. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Aging Life Network. If you have a question or comment for Nancy about the show, please send an email to nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. That's nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. Now, back to the program. Hi, this is Nancy. Welcome back. And, you know, Freddie and I were just talking about the fact that this is a huge topic. And it's probably one of the, well, maybe many, but I think one of the few topics that um, having people call in and ask questions or tell their stories would be, um, might be really beneficial to other listeners. So um, I may have her back uh, in a few months to just to just provide that time for people to ask questions because it really is, um, it's such a stressful time for families and for the person in the hospital because they don't know what's going to happen. And in many instances, um, the person you love suddenly goes from extraordinary independence to needing some sort of assistance and it happens very quickly and for those families that haven't done any planning or had conversations about what are we going to do when or what are we going to do if, um, it can come, it can become even more stressful, I think. Would you agree? Yeah. I, I, I think that um, we all understand that um, families in, and patients in the hospital can can at times be really at their worst because of all the fears and and sometimes there's guilt and there's just a, a lot of things going on um, emotionally and, and we understand that. Um, mm-hmm. It's it's very difficult. I, I think that um, if, if someone has a, you know, a parent that's, you know, in their 90s, but this person has been in the hospital a few times before they're, you know, maybe in their 80s, um, it, it would have been a good time to begin to have conversations about changing the situation before it becomes a disaster and they can't go home again. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so that it, I always try when, when a family member and the families are looking at someone that's maybe in their let's say typically in their 80s and, you know, and they're doing okay, but, you know, there aren't going to be that many more instances of things happening that aren't going to um, produce a massive change and and bigger needs uh, in the home and planning and sort of beginning to think about that in advance is just so much better for everyone all the way around. But but we, we still have to deal with things that happen suddenly and it's difficult. Right. Right. And would you say that, um, well, you probably can't say anything with certainty, of course, but if somebody has done well and has not had events in their eighties and, and now they're in their nineties and, and things begin to happen, can it be, um, 
can it be more trying on um, the person if they're in their 90s? Does age play a role or is it more your health and condition? Um. I, I think that there's something about the number of 90 where if someone has been sustaining up until then and doing fairly well, I, their vulnerability to injury and, and what injury will ultimately produce for their um, you know, level of independence is, is very high with the incidence of it, it just changing everything. But, it, you know, sometimes there are very healthy 90-year-olds that do recover. Um, there are 90-year-olds that go to acute rehab and do two and a half to three hours a day of rehab. Absolutely. Yes. Or go home with home care, get a, get a new knee because they're walking a lot, and they go home with home care. So, um, but health is probably the biggest factor always in whether sure. someone's going to recover from a hospitalization um, okay. Yeah. Or an injury like a fall at home. Or- yeah. Yeah. So, Freddie, let's talk about your role in the the process. You've you've spoken a little bit of it already here today, but um, what is generally the role of the discharge professional uh, or discharge planner in the the overall process? So. Um, you know, we're called either acute case managers or discharge planners. We start our um, work with the patient right when they come into the hospital, and we're basically following everything that's happening. And if things are changing day to day with them, um, when we interview them and do an evaluation, at least the experienced ones really are supposed to leave the patient's room, leave the interview, having a good idea of what needs or is going to happen. We, we ask enough questions that we can quickly see probably what's, what's going to be the situation. For example, if we see someone who, who's incredibly resistant in that interview to any sort of, and people will be sometimes very vocal. I will never, I will not go to rehab. I'm going home no matter what. Well, there's a good, I, there's a good chance they're going to go home. But we, we start when they get in the hospital and um, we just, start to be, I would say, sort of an intermediary between services on the outside and the patient in the hospital. And often we are communicating with the doctors. If the patient has a question or the nurse has a question, it, well, especially the patient, because the nurses can access, access the doctors quickly. But if the patient's really concerned about something and it has something to do with the physician's role, we will Uh, communicate with the physician about that because the physician really wants the patient to do okay. And to, you know, I would say almost all of the time, that's really their attitude is they want to help and they want to do the right thing for the patient and they want the information. Mm -hmm. And so you, when you say the intermediary between the patient and the outside, you're talking about community resources? Any of the discharge services, um, again, like hospices and home cares and rehab and um, 
you know, follow-up appointments, helping them to find a primary care physician if they don't have one. We don't call and typically make appointments, but we can get someone to do that. We we can get patients in sooner to see a specialist if we make the call or the hospital makes the call rather than the person going home and having to make the call. There's there's so many things we can and, and will do so that there so that continuity is in place when they go home. Um, but there's also resources that people ask about, such as, you know, food programs and housing and, you know, disability. And, and to, I mean, there's just too many things to name. And, and our job really is to give them the resources so that they can access those things on the outside. We don't initiate those kinds of things in the hospital. Sure. No, but but you, uh, I mean, the more experienced you are, right? The, the more of a veteran you are in that work, the Absolutely. more resources you are aware of. And so it, it, it does become your job to, to learn about those resources. Oh, definitely. And we, you know, we, we need to be able to have a, a conversation about Meals on Wheels or a conversation about, you know, the income support division and going in and applying for food stamps. And, you know, and if we don't know the answer to it, and if we don't know enough, it really is our job to give them the resource that they contact that will know enough. To go find out. or Right. right. Because we really believe in, in independence and some, you know, helping seniors to do it also to do things for themselves and, and ask for what they need. Um, even though some things can be so complicated and difficult, you know, on the outside that, that, that is, you know, that's hard to do. So, so I'm the adult child and my mom is in the hospital. I may or may not be there. Um, many often people do come, uh, but I may be calling. Are there questions that I should be asking um, that might help improve mom's success or outcome? Um, should I be talking to you, the doctor, everybody? Um, I I think that one of the things to remember is that if someone's in the hospital and, and let's say they're a senior, they're 70 in their 70s or we aren't really going to contact a daughter um, even someone in their 80s who's who's quite with it or you know competent we aren't going to initiate calling a family member if that patient is able to give us all of the information and they're communicating with the family member first off right um but um, often patients like that do want that they're involved in supportive uh, adult child to be included or to be updated. And so we're, we are able to do that. And I, I think the case manager ought to be able to answer all, almost all questions, even some basic medical things. Um, okay. So it, the doctor really is accessed mostly for medical questions or the nurse. Um, and, and I think certainly before discharge, patient and patient's relative who is involved with their care 
is entitled to and needs to ask for a meeting, another conversation with a case manager if they have any question of what to expect or, or what is going to be happening to the patient when they're discharged. And if discharge is what they think is appropriate at that time, because there are ways to appeal your discharge if you really don't feel like enough has been done medically for the patient. Or if, or if enough is ready, or, or if I haven't had time to look at a facility um, to pick from that list, or I want mom to go home and I need a little time to get everything set up. So that is where a case manager speaking with, this is why case management starts on the day of admission, is everybody needs to be talking early on so that those things are in place. An appeal of a discharge under Medicare can be related to a discharge to a rehab or something that if there's a an appeal about what type of discharge it is. But most of the time under Medicare and Medicaid, an appeal of a discharge is about treatment in the hospital and whether enough has been done in the view of the patient or the patient's advocate. So that might be reaching out to you and letting you know that that uh, uh, another conversation with the physician to understand what treatment has been done and what, and to get my questions answered. Absolutely. Might, so I might do that before an appeal, but, but it would. You, it, you always want to do that before an appeal, and you always want to do that before the day of discharge. It's perfectly reasonable, and the physicians want you to do that because they want, to, they want you to be okay with your discharge and what, what your experience has been. And they, do, they don't want you full of fear and questions. And, um, but it's important to remember that, that these things should be happening throughout the stay in the hospital, oh, no. not on the day of discharge. Yeah. So also to call to what you were um, mentioning, someone hasn't had the time to go out and look at the rehab facilities. Um, That has happened. It happens more often than you would think. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, what you're going to have is a case manager who's beginning to push you a little bit. If you knew already that you needed to do that, Um, you know, families need to do their due diligence and they need to be respectful of sort of the guidelines for discharge and things like that, because you run the risk of your insurance um, saying, listen, she was ready to be discharged and the family is saying that um, they need more time to go look at facilities. That's documented in the chart. So, so the patient becomes a little vulnerable at that point if, Financially, financially vulnerable. Financially vulnerable. Yeah. And, and it's, it's sometimes, you know, if things aren't started quite early on for that sort of planning, they become vulnerable also because they don't get their first choice because it's not available. The sooner right. we right. are asking for something out in the system, right. uh, the more likely it is the patient's going to get their first choice okay. for discharge. Mm-hmm. I can't believe it. We have one more break to take, Ms. Freddie. And um, I have a few more questions based on what we just talked about. So when we come back, 
We'll answer a couple more questions and discuss some of the more important points and, um, and finish up this great conversation. So we'll be right back. Sure. Are you overwhelmed and struggling with the next step? Is your family in crisis? Do you need advice or help making a difficult decision for an aging loved one? Aging Life Network was developed to connect you with senior care experts and life care professionals who will discuss your unique situation, offer practical step-by-step guidance, tell you the questions to ask, and help you understand the maze of options. Their network of life care professionals, available to you through HIPAA-compliant video conferencing and calls, will work with you to create action plans to solve your current and real-time problems. Aging Life Network's online educational center, ALN Academy, offers 24-7 access to the most up-to-date and accurate information for seniors and their families. Through podcast interviews with senior care experts, articles, and live webinars, Aging Life Network shares with you those things you need to know to care for your aging loved one. Check out aginglifenetwork.com today and find the answers you need. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. This is Aging Life Network. If you have a question or comment for Nancy about the show, please send an email to nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. That's nancy at aginglifenetwork.com. Now, back to the program. So I am here with Freddie Zider, um, a 15-year veteran of the hospital system, working as a professional discharge planner. And I was asking her over the break, one of the things that occurred to me as I was listening to her in the last segment, uh, particularly when, Freddie, when you were talking about, you know, the assessment that you do and how comprehensive it is. And I thought, my God, how many people a day are you having to um, not just work with, but sort of absorb their story, you know, understand who they are and follow them through as you've got people you're following, people that are leaving, people arriving. It must be an incredibly busy, stressful job. Yeah, it, it, it's yes, it, it, it's it's stressful, um, but it's it's rewarding. And um, I think as a um, one of the things I wanted to tell you is we are also called case managers, okay. and we're called care coordinators. Also, it it sort of depends what hospital you're in. Okay. Um, if you're ever requesting um, assistance from us, um, we would probably be called the uh, case managers. Um, but we are discharge planners also. Um, we, when, when we have a full caseload, we're able to pick up pretty quickly in that caseload who are going to be more complex. And, and those are that kind of situation, again, is based on age. I mean, you know, I would say 85 and above kind of is a red flag on an admission. Um, geography is a red flag. People that are uninsured, red flag, or, you know, different kind of 
people with no family members listed on a face sheet. I mean, the first thing we get is a face sheet. And we're, we are looking at that, um, you know, just looking at six different things on the face sheet quickly um, before we, you know, even sort of start to compile our caseload. And, and, and we're able to assess and determine which are going to be more complex. But then there's also the outliers where there's family members that just, um, they have a lot of needs and, and they are vocal and they, they really are, you know, just, they have a lot of needs and they're accessing us a lot. Yeah. Or demanding, if you will, but and, and sometimes, yeah, I'm. <laughs> you're trying to avoid. Of course, I mean, you're being not, I, um, yeah, I mean, well, you know, some of us believe in the squeaky wheel, but but the fact is, um, um, yeah, some people have a lot more questions than others, and particularly those who have not done any planning and are in significant fear. I would think. And and I, I think that inside the hospital system, just kind of a secret is, is that if, if someone has a family member, let, let's say a, an adult daughter who is reasonable, but knowledgeable and assertive, well, not even so much knowledgeable, but um, assertive and is asking for things to be a certain standard, you know, just asking to be communicated with and, and not, you know, um, just dismissed, if you will, it, it, pretty quickly within among the staff and the physicians also, it, it is known that the patient has someone like that in their room. And that's a good thing. I, would, I was going to say, yeah. It can, oh, yeah, it's a good it can, thing. It can take more time from everybody. But, yeah, educating yourself, um, it, background in some of this healthcare stuff, some of the language. Um, yeah, I would think that it would, everybody would notice. I mean, if, if we have a patient who's got an advocate um, in the room or, you know, uh, just related to them in some way, and that person is saying to us, well, I would like, you know, the acute rehab to evaluate her. She was, you know, I understand that physical therapy is recommending skilled, but I don't really want my mom, you know, around a, a situation that's a setting like that for whatever reason. I, mm-hmm. I would like you guys to look at her for acute rehab. And if, if a case manager is saying, well, physical therapy is not recommending that, that the advocate of the patient really should and can say, well, why not? Why can't I have the acute rehab look at her? I can call her insurance on the back of the card and ask them if that's something I can request. I mean, we will do it if someone is, yeah, Mm -hmm. I would say pushes Mm -hmm. a little bit. We, Mm -hmm. we, you know, we want to do what's right for the patient. And so we do also want their advocates to be reasonable. Um, But Right, right, because in addition to the recommendation by the hospital, the rehab has people that come in and do their own evaluation, correct? Absolutely. Right. They, so you, we, give, we give the case to them to look at, and they look at the viability for the insurance to um, approve it. Sometimes um, they don't feel like someone's appropriate, but 
the patient and the family within the realm of reason really do think it is. And so they will ask for the denial from the insurance to be, you know, sort of for it to be proven to, well, are you sure? I mean, I'd like this to be submitted to the insurance. Can we please do that? Right. The, right. These are all things that you have that you can request. Um, yeah. I think the other um, challenge can be sometimes um, when you're dealing um and I don't know if this is all hospitals, but it seems like on the weekend there is uh, a lower staffing of um, case managers. Is that correct? So talking to someone can be a little more challenging. Well, um, I, you know what? Don't even consider that. If you okay. need to speak to a case manager and it's a weekend, you it is not your worry that it is less staffed. You you need that case manager to be communicating with you. Yes. And they really should have a sign-off or a report from the case manager during the week. But uh, most hospitals have pretty good uh, staffing for case management on the weekends. Because oh, discharges yeah. happen on the weekends. Well, and I would imagine that um, the work of the discharge professional, um, the case manager, has become ever more important as Medicare, you know, in the last decade, as Medicare has, um, you know, begun to ding hospitals for, you know, returns during the first 30 days. And so it behooves them to have people like yourself making sure um, that that the discharge is appropriate and safe and that the person is not going to return in a week. And, and, and the, absolutely. And the patients get a letter from us, um, usually two days um, from admission and the day before the projected or the day of the projected discharge. And the patient has the ability and we are supposed to bring them in to sign forms. And, and the hospitals do this um, where their rights are explained to them um, that, uh, that they, it's an important letter from Medicare is what it's called. And it's pretty clear that they have rights oh. and it's important they read through that, those yes. letters before they sign them. Okay. Okay. Um, so any other things people should be aware of in this process? Um, you've shared a lot of information and I know you would love more time to share more of it, but um, uh, we've gotten a really good picture of how this process goes. I would say from, you know, just the, the biggest thing is to remember from admission, you have the right to speak to a case manager about the disposition and about what's going on with your loved one. Um, if the loved one agrees with you being their advocate, of course. Um, right, right. And if someone is admitted to the hospital, let's say your mom or your dad, and they're in there for four days, and no one talks to you until the day of discharge, 
you don't have to go along with discharge if if you're not understanding and if you were reaching out to people and they weren't uh, communicating with you. Mm -hmm. But always remember to note what floor of the hospital your parent is on. Let's say you live out of town. Um, You can call the hospital, ask for that floor or, you know, fifth floor case management, case manager for my mother. The whole staff knows those assignments and and you will be able to communicate. Yeah. And I would say what I'm hearing is um, call day one. I mean, they may, it may be the next morning before they call you back, but call right away. And and we know, absolutely. And we know that if a family member is calling us, we're, we're not ignoring that. Um, in, unless, again, it's a, if there's a violation of confidentiality and things like that. It's easy for us to tell whether we can. Oh, right. Yeah. Sometimes you have to ask them. the patient, is it okay? Um, I mean, it's harder them. to speak with the nurse because the nurse has all the medical information in yeah. there. And HIPAA guidelines are, you know, yeah. very strict with that. And, but. I, and I actually recommend whenever possible to have people in the hospital with you, Um an advocate, a friend, a family member. Um, yeah, those, those are, that is good advice. Call, um, ask to talk to case management within the first day. Yes. And make sure you get power of attorney established. And make sure uh, there is or, a power of attorney, right? Who's and, the, and, and have your paperwork and have that listed on the face sheet that you're the power of attorney. And I can almost guarantee in many families with multiple children, it's the moment in which they say, who is the power of attorney? Yes. <laughs> oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we've had many discussions about that on this yeah. program. Um. Well, um, Freddie, I thank you for joining me today. It's been um, it's been very um, fruitful and productive, and and I think a lot of good information has been shared. Um, I do want to make a shout out that I always forget to my sponsors, which um, are TrueLink Financial and the Decades Group, and um, also say that in the next several weeks. We will be checking in um, on seniors' mental health after a year of near isolation, as well as discussing such topics as guardianship and long-term care insurance. Um, uh, Join us live each Wednesday or on demand at voiceamerica.com or follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Freddie, thank you. It's been an extremely um, um, interesting but, I think, informative discussion we've had today and um i you're welcome i'd like like to have you back and and try a call-in thingy that that would be interesting (laughs) absolutely yeah but i hope you have a great week and i uh, wish you all a good week for everybody and we'll see you next time here at aging life all things aging thanks Thank you for tuning in this week to Aging Life Network. Please join host Nancy Oriola for another edition of the program next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We can't wait to talk again.